and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we, the Lost in Science team, talk about science and after last week's little hiatus so we could get our science together, uh, we are back with some new stories. Uh, I'm Stu and with me on the show this week is Chris. Chris, what have you brought for us of a sciencey nature? Well, this is the thing, Stu. We can't uh, really go on hiatus for too long because there's so much science happening. So much science. When too much science is never enough. That's right. That's right. Um, The science that I'm going to talk about is science that can't be avoided. The astronomers are all agog at the new images from the new space telescope that went up into space on Christmas Day, I think it was. Uh, last year, yeah, it took it took a long time. It was a big, long project. I think ten billion dollars it cost to get that up there as well. Someone's saying, "Why why can't my security camera see someone's face outside the front door?" It's like, well, you didn't spend ten billion dollars on it. That's probably why the the pictures are better. Yeah, look, it is it is seems to be delivering. Everyone is very excited, and I think kind of feel like they have to be because it did cost so much. Like this is the the telescope that nearly killed off NASA's other projects. Uh, it was so expensive. But um, look, it's up there now and it's looking good. Um, first images have been released. Obviously, images are not good for radio. So we're fairly limited what we can do. It's like when they... Um, do you remember when, when Blu-ray discs came out and they would show ads for Blu-ray discs on DVDs? And you'd be kind of like, well, how do I know it's better? It's on a DVD, not on a Blu-ray. So Yeah, they still somehow made it look better. Yeah, it was obviously... The, the magic of, of cinema or whatever it was. Mm. But I kind of feel like, you know, there's been a lot of photos of like, oh, this is what the Hubble looked like, but this is what the JWST looks like. Isn't it better? It's amazing. But it, it really is some amazing images coming off there. Yeah, yeah, there's some amazing images. I want, look, obviously, I can't talk about them too much detail because, as I said, it's kind of a visual thing. But, look, there have been some discoveries or possible discoveries already, including what is suggested to be the oldest known galaxy in the universe. In the picture, it's just a fuzzy red blob, so I've described it visually. Then I can just talk about the actual concept from here on. Um, I've got a bit of a, bit of a um, sort of a, a warning here. I am kind of jumping the gun because this is only a preprint that's been put out. It hasn't gone through peer review or anything like that. And this discovery is kind of tentative, I suppose, until it's confirmed by better observations. But still, it's an excuse to talk about the JWST results. And yes, I will also touch on the name JWST. Um, Try not to call it by the full official name for reasons that I will explain in the story. And there's been no progress on that issue anyway. But um, yeah, we'll touch on that too. Great. And, you know, of course, we can always correct ourselves on a later edition of the show if this science turns out to be wrong, which is what science does really, isn't it? Gives me an excuse to talk about it again. Perfect. (laughs) And I will be talking about how... um, Now, when you think about life on Earth, Chris, do you, what, what sort of conditions do you think life favours? Yeah, I don't it's know. Be, it's got you know, it's, it's, it's got to be kind of you know, you think of like warm and and moist environments. You well, get this is this is the thing. Organisms. So yeah, I mean, we are one of the things that the this space telescope is doing is looking for planets that could be compatible with life, and yeah, we're looking for certain temperatures and the presence of water, and that's how we go. Oh, that planet, there could be life there. It's pretty obvious. We we do we do associate you know life with with a temperature range and the availability of water and all these things because we're pretty we're pretty biased on what we think living things will like because all the ones we know of are from here so far 
Um, but what I'm going to be talking about later in the show is the idea that cold, dry skin might be something that's actually going to save life on Earth in the future, potentially. Bit of a mystery. I'll just leave it there, just hanging. Uh, but you can you can stay listening to the show and I'll, I'll explain in much more detail what I'm talking about. But please stay with us for the next half hour for more Lost in Science. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and I am talking about the latest images, or the first images released from the JWST, full name James Webb Space Telescope, but we prefer not to call it that because we don't like James Webb that much, or, uh, look, I think it's just, it's probably going to be worth renaming, uh, that's my opinion, but I'll talk about that at the end, I reckon. Um, but yeah, these images themselves are spectacular, you've probably seen them all over the news, in fact, you've probably seen the one that I think Joe Biden released, he jumped in on the, um, on the, the show, and it was... A, essentially a picture that is a whole lot of distant galaxies with a larger galaxy cluster, closer galaxy cluster in the middle. Have you seen that one? Yeah, I have. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, there, there was there was a there was a similar sort of thing from uh, the Hubble telescope from years ago. That's probably everyone's seen. It's been plastered all over the place as well. But this one's got a lot more detail, and it looks. I mean, from from the way they describe it, it looks further back in time is what they're kind of saying about it. It can see things uh, further away. Therefore, they were there a longer time ago because of the time it takes for light to travel, I think. Yeah, it not only sees them uh, further back in time, but also much clearer than could be seen with the Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah, this is it, the one you're talking about, thinking about is the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Apparently, I've read some confusing things. This one is not directly equivalent apparently they're still working on the equivalent of that with the JWST but this was um, essentially a picture of a galaxy cluster that was taken about 13 and a half hours it took them to take this picture so long exposure but not as long as uh, it would be needed for like a smaller telescope um, yeah the galaxy cluster in the middle it's some very large galaxy at about 4.6 billion light years away um, which is a long way obviously. Um, yeah. But what is more exciting is what it shows about the galaxies that are behind that. Because uh, one of the things that the reason they focus on this particular galaxy cluster is that uh, the mass of it then bends the light from the galaxies behind it and magnifies them and makes it easier to see what's behind it, essentially. So, so they're basically using this, this galaxy that's kind of in the middle of the picture as yep. a lens to see stuff that's actually that's behind it yeah so this is why it's pretty amazing it's pretty cool idea um so this is a yeah. effect from einstein's general theory of relativity um and yeah like it bends the light it makes it kind of these curved arcs often you see like little or little you know curved smudges of the distant galaxies and you sometimes see them um on like two in the same galaxy in two spots because the light from if it's directly behind the uh, the, the foreground galaxy, then its light is kind of bent around either side uh, as part of the lensing effect. Um, 
I remember doing this at when I was at university studying how this works. And um, it looks a bit complicated when you've got something larger like a galaxy. But if you've got like a, a smaller source, like a you know a, a sun, a star, or a or a black hole, then the lens it looks just like if we try and make something similar out of glass, it will just look just like the base of a wine glass. So essentially, what you're doing is like looking through the base of a wine glass. And you think about it, if you ever want to try that, maybe if you have wine glasses in the house that that you have available if you can snap off the stem make it even easier but um if you can look at that then you can see how it it bends images and it gets these kind of nice arc shapes and that's essentially what these uh foreground galaxies are doing yeah please please don't snap off stems of your wine glasses uh unnecessarily but i i get what you're saying not unnecessarily but if you're doing it anyway like because i mean they're easy to break so if you have or maybe if you've got like um you know one that detaches I know. If, I think the plastic ones might work just as well as the glass ones. You know, experiment. That's what science is about. Um, yeah. So that's what that's like the most famous picture that's come out of it. There's also seen like other um, some colliding galaxies. It's quite a spectacular picture. Um, a so-called planetary nebula, which is basically it's the it's not actually planets. It's the kind of gas that's been blown off a red giant as its kind of end of its life. Um, a kind of a larger nebula of gas and dust where stars are being born. And they've also turned the telescope towards Jupiter in our own solar system um, to get a bit of a look at that in the infrared. Have they, have they released those pictures yet or are they still sort of uh, working on them? They released some Jupiter pictures. Um, they're, it's, an, it's an infrared view of Jupiter, so if you're really into infrared then I suppose that's it's a novelty there. I mean, we sent space probes to Jupiter, obviously, so we've got really up close views of it before. And this is just interesting to see how the the this telescope sees things in our own solar system. And I suppose if you're looking at something in particular, it could be useful. But you know, it's really just showing off that they can do it, I guess, at this point. Um, similarly with the other observation, which is they also turned it towards an exoplanet. That's a planet that orbits another star. Um, this planet is about a similar size to Jupiter. But um, the previous observations have indicated that it probably has water in its atmosphere. So they turned this telescope towards it to see if they could see the, the spectrum of the, yeah, of the light emitted from the, or that's passing through its atmosphere. And they could tell, confirm that yes, indeed, it showed the presence of water in this particular atmosphere. Um, would not be compatible with life though. This one is way too hot, uh, too close to its star, too much radiation and other stuff going on. Um, that we don't believe it would have life on it, but it shows that uh, we can detect things like water, which is what we need to do in the search for possible life-bearing planets. Allegedly, I hear that your cold, dry skin is just as good, but um, you know, I don't know much about that yet. I have to wait to hear in a few minutes what that's all about. Um, but yeah, one of the most exciting discoveries is what might be the oldest known galaxy so far in the universe, which has got the very exciting name of GLZ13. Um, as I said in the introduction, it's kind of just a red smudge. Um, obviously, because the James Webb, the JWST, sorry, myself, is um, it's an infrared telescope. So the colours that you're seeing in these pictures, they are not the actual colours if you were looking with your eyes, uh, but they're chosen to bring out structures and they roughly correspond to, I suppose, the spectrum, the infrared spectrum. Um, so in this case, they use deeper red to show the deeper parts of the infrared, like the long wavelength light. Um, and of course, things that are a long way away from us are sort of 
they are redder, they are shifted towards the red or the infrared part of the spectrum because they are moving away from us because uh, the universe is expanding and the further something is, the faster it is moving away. As I think I discussed in a recent episode, we're talking about the Hubble constant and some of the, um, the ways that's calculated. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's basically simply, if you think about it, if, if the whole universe is expanding at the same rate, then um, you know, something that's closer is going to be moving at a certain speed. Something that's further away has got all everything sort of doubling at, might be doubling at the same rate, which means that its actual sort of speed in meters per second or kilometers per second is going to be much faster than the things that are close to us. Um, yeah. Now, to do this one, this is only kind of a rough and ready measurement. They've, um, because this is meant to be a galaxy in the early part of the universe, you expect a lot of stars being formed. There should be a lot of hydrogen gas around it. And hydrogen absorbs uh, light in the ultraviolet spectrum normally. But for something this far away, it should be absorbed at the... That should be shifted down to the infrared. You know, what would be ultraviolet? It would be infrared now when we see it because it's so far away and moving so fast. And so you can use that kind of what was the ultraviolet spectrum to get an idea of how much it's redshifted and therefore how far it is away from us. Um, and they use this, to, and they using that, they calculated that it has a redshift of what they call 13 is the measurement they, they have for the redshift, which is what's called GLZ 13. But that means that it would have formed only around about 300 million years after the Big Bang. So it's very very new in in the time of the universe considering the universe is about 13.8 um, billion years old this is you know what's what does that make it 13.5 billion years old or something like yeah that. essentially it's what you're doing you're seeing yeah. 13.5 wow. billion years back in time so so being that old is it still there like is is it do, do they think it still exists or is this just a sort of ghost image of something that used to be there well, I guess we have to do more observations to try and find out what it actually is and what it's made of. Um, mm. Because, like, if it's still there, it's a lot further away from us now. It is something like 33 billion light years away. So it's a long, yeah. long way away. Um, but I guess, yeah, it, it depends what happens too. Like, it's, you know, we believe there are a lot of very old stars in our galaxy, for instance. But even then, you know, stars die, um, they blow up. And then other stars are formed out of the remnants. So there should be continuing evolution. However, this one is, it's quite, seems to be quite small compared to uh, a galaxy like our own. So our galaxy has a mass of about a, over a trillion times that of the sun. Um, because it's, you know, so large, it's got so many stars in it. This one is believed to only be about a billion solar masses. So it is only a fraction of the size of a galaxy like ours. So a question is whether it is just a small galaxy um, or whether, for instance, galaxies get big like ours by joining up over time. That, you know, they start out small and then they collide and they join up and they create larger galaxies. And this is believed to happen with things like, you know, the supermassive black holes at the centre of galaxies. There's a puzzle about how they get so large. And one theory is that they combine with other black holes and they, they grow and grow. So it, to answer your question, it might not be there because it might have turned into something else. It might have collided with other galaxies and might be something else now. So we, yeah, we had to do a bit of calculation to figure out what that is, what's going on there. Take some more pictures. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But it's look, it's really, it's really exciting. Um, it's kind of, 
you know, how also um, stars and galaxies can form and be, you know, be so bright enough to see early enough, that early in the universe. Um, it's kind of pushing some of the models that have been developed. It's gotten some of the people who who uh, have their different cosmological models quite excited. The the people who want to, who believe that gravity is wrong, you know, they want to modify gravity. Um, they reckon that they their theories predict this perfectly, but they say that about everything. So I don't know. I'm not really, I don't want to disparage them too much, but um, I'm not an expert in that field and I'm not convinced by their enthusiasm for it necessarily because the, the standard cosmological people seem to be pretty confident that they can explain this as well. Um, but yeah, as I said though, this is only just kind of early observations. Um, the hydrogen spectrum that they use is only a really rough um, spectrum like it's a basic kind of edge of the hydrogen spectrum to really get an idea of the proper distance and the proper redshift you need a better measurements where you can see a full kind of gas spectrum and then you can get an idea of how far it really is away um, so yeah more observations we need to confirm it but look it's an exciting result it's a good result from our uh, illustrious space telescope um, the JWST, remember, um, James Webb is the person that's named after. He was a NASA administrator back in the 60s. Um, he was believed to be um, involved in the persecution of LGBTQ people uh, back in that day. Um, there is some people who doubt whether he was actually actively involved in that kind of movement or whether he just looked the other way and people doubt, you know, a lot of debate over whether it matters or not. Um, I think that, you know, just for inclusivity, it would be good to change the name of the, of the telescope. Uh, it was an arbitrarily chosen name by, uh, a more recent NASA administrator who wanted to honor one of their predecessors. Um, no one voted for it. It was just one person's decision. So it should be fairly easy to, to, um, to change. And the fact that people are uncomfortable with it, uh, and it is giving us such good science, I think there's a good argument for, um, yeah, for making everyone happy with it so that we don't have to call it by an awkward acronym instead of its proper well, name we, we could keep the acronym and just change it to the i don't know the g willikers space telescope yeah there's like someone suggested the jelly willy space telly or something like that or <laughs> i think that the jace telly space telly could be good yeah oh, send in your suggestions we'll forward them to nasa for you exactly exactly across australia on the community radio network you're listening to lost in science As I was saying in the intro, one of the things we know about life is that it prefers a pretty mild environment, if you think about it. Uh, we get a lot more living things when there is a high enough temperature and a reasonable supply of water. And this is, you know, this is Earth. This is why all the species we've ever discovered uh, are here. And planets like Mars and Venus that we've looked on don't appear to be home to any living things at all. They're too hot and too cold and too dry from what we've observed so far. It's also why for my own, also why for my own comfort as a living organism, I'm sitting in a heated room with a glass of water because that's what I need yeah. to survive. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, we've got the two extremes right now. The UK is sweltering in too much heat and we are shivering with too little heat, but we've, but we've got brains. We can, we can come up with solutions to these problems. <laughs> we, um, we created the problems in some instances as well. So, you know, well, there, there is that. And, that. and that brings me to my next point is that, you know, us humans have changed big slabs of the natural environment to be different to how they once were. And the times when 
a lot of species evolved, uh, they don't really have the same conditions they had when they were evolving. And this has led to dwindling numbers of many of those animal species particularly, but also plants as well. Well, what you see, are you going to suggest we, we introduce like mutations and diversity deliberately through genetic engineering? Well, no, that, that, is, that is an option. And certainly, certainly uh, deliberate mutation has been used in the past to introduce some diversity. They used to use radiation as a form of uh, mutagen that would um, develop potentially new crops and things like that. But no, this is not what we're looking at. Thinking about animals not already in the population, but how about animals that used to be in the population? So what about oh. if you could get genes from preserved animals and get them back into the population? Why am I hearing the Jurassic Park theme tune now? I mean, we talked about <laughs> de-extinction. So is this similar to just de-extinction, like they're doing, say, with the thylacine, trying to bring it back? Yeah, kind of, it, is, it, is, it is closely related. And this kind of idea is obviously, you know, has, uh, you know, potential for those kind of de-extinction exercises. But we're talking about animals that are still, there are still populations of them. We're just talking about severely, extremely endangered animals. Oh, but, okay. So again, yeah, I guess one of the things with um, with uh, de-extinction is you've basically got, say, the, the genome of an extinct animal like a thylacine, but then you've got to put those genes somewhere. You don't have a thylacine embryo you can put them into. You don't have a mother thylacine to grow it. You don't have a family of thylacines to raise it. You basically have to have surrogates along the way. The idea of using DNA from animals that have been preserved in some way is kind of the stuff of science fiction. But, you know, films like Jurassic World tend to focus on how cool it is to have rampaging dinosaurs running around rather than the technical difficulties of the science behind it. And let's be honest, because it's not that exciting necessarily to see a bunch of people in lab coats tinkering with um, pipettes, although that always seems to be what they do show in the end. Um, now, one of the big problems that, that is really an issue is finding DNA that is intact enough to use for any of these purposes. So in, those, in the films, it was through blood preserved in amber in blood-sucking insects, but there may be other ways to find it. So we already know that the use of frozen reproductive cells like sperm and eggs, that's been around for decades and it's been successfully used in uh, human reproductive therapies in, in medicine as well. This generally requires very expensive liquid nitrogen freezing facilities and specifically harvested cells to work in order to get any level of success out of that process. Um, more recently, research has been conducted on freeze-dried sperm cells from mice, which have been successfully used to fertilize eggs and form embryos in experimental conditions. So the freeze-drying process is quite different from the liquid nitrogen cryo storage that's been used in IVF programs and that sort of thing. So this is actually, the, the, the cells are dried out, the cells are effectively dead, but the DNA is intact and it can be reconstituted. But again, this is from sperm cells specifically experimenting to see if it would work. Even more promising from a conservation and genetic diversity perspective is the possibility of using freeze-dried somatic cells to achieve the same result. Now, somatic cells are those which are already 
differentiated into different cell types. They're not reproductive cells like eggs or sperm. They're just, so they're just the normal cells in the body that are... Just normal cells from, from any part of the body of the animal. So in a paper published in Nature Communications on July the 5th, they reported successfully cloning both male and female mice from somatic mouse cells that were taken from freeze-dried mouse skin. Now this is, this is pretty groundbreaking stuff. So they've got freeze-dried mouse skin that was freeze-dried and kept at variable, basically at room temperature. And then they have taken the freeze-dried cells, extracted the DNA from those cells, reconstituted it, injected into mouse eggs, and produced viable living mouse embryos that grew into healthy, fertile mice. So this is a huge uh, jump in this kind of technology, I think. And yeah, certainly from... Particularly if you're ever worried about mice going extinct. Well, exactly. I mean, may, maybe mice are a very special breed of animals, and they certainly... Um, there is no shortage of them. But... That, that being said, the success rate of their experiments was pretty low. So only 0.2 to 5.4% of the individual cells became embryos. Oh, so it's okay. a very, very low number. But considering that a single mouse skin contains potentially millions, tens of millions of of uh, nuclei which have DNA in them could be taken from a single skin without running out of cells so it is still a potentially useful way to bo the boost the genetic diversity of a population the big problem here is that freeze drying is not commonly used in preserving animal skins so you know old taxidermed thylacines or you know other extinct animals that you might see in the uh, the Hall of Horrors at the museum. It's not like you can just go and grab a bit of old leather and just you know grab some DNA out of that and and use that in this process. It has to be this freeze dried um, cells that they're actually using. So that could be an issue. But as far as from a conservation point of view, the fact that they could you know they could get an animal that died of natural causes or if it was hit by a car or if it was attacked by a predator or any of those things you could freeze dry the animal then and still harvest the cells later on so from a conservation point of view it's still a pretty exciting way of preserving that genetic diversity even though uh, we can't we can't really at this point go back in time and raid the uh the the museum and, and grab all the things out of there what about um, what about the mammoths they find in the tundra? Are they they wouldn't be dried; they'd just be frozen, wouldn't they? Well, it depends. It depends on a lot of things, like the conditions for freeze drying. It's got to be dry and cold at the same time, and it's got to drop below a certain temperature within a certain time period uh, for this to happen. But it, it is potentially uh, there, there may be some parts of those preserved um, mammoths from the tundra and that sort of thing that may be contain viable DNA and that's really what they're actually looking for here is not viable cells just viable DNA that they can reuse but again without uh, an existing population to to carry and bear the uh, the somatically generated embryos is it's still a big question of how is that gonna 
how is that going to play out in reality? Whereas if you've got a population, you can, you know, basically doing IVF on, you know, Tasmanian devils or Tasmanian tigers. We can't do it with Tasmanian tigers, but you know, other endangered animals we can potentially use them for. Um, look, it's not it's not all the way there yet. Like you said, it is with mice. We're not in any danger of running out of mice at this point in time. But it is a, an interesting result to be able to use this storage method, which is the main thing they're excited about, is that it's cheaper, less prone to failure uh, than than the the liquid nitrogen, which is the commonly used way to store these kind of things. They can potentially store it at room temperature. Obviously, it will extend the life if they have you know, uh, atmosphere-controlled environments and that sort of thing too. But it is a super cool tool to try and reverse the extinction of some animal species and help rebuild their populations. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.